All right, we have the joy of doing the next two hours together. Back to back, we're going to dig into two of the most important topics, I do believe, that might seem like, duh, in light of some other topics that we have that you think, I really need help and it could be really complicated. This is role of the husband, role of the wife. But part of what makes this difficult is it's been around a long, long enough that we've got all kinds of trappings from the world, what the world says, just kind of what we think, what we saw growing up, what different churches that we've been in have taught or either modeled. So if you don't mind, I'd like you to actually really choose to be alert and say, all right, am I thinking what the Bible says? We want to go back to God's word to say, what does the Bible say about the role of the husband, role of the wife in a day that in many ways just discounts it altogether? Do we even need this institution of marriage? Or if you do have it, no one expects it to be good. There's so many jokes about marriage and you just assume that men and women are not going to get along. But when you look at the scriptures, that's not what you see. And the hope that we have of the gospel and mercy and grace, that these are not just entities that rumble around on the fringes of our life but have nothing to do with our marriage. These things should impact our homes and our hearts and our marriages. But I will say, we just celebrated, oh, how many days ago? Maybe 11 days ago, 30 years of marriage. Three decades. So not the 36 that you've got there. And we joke with each other, three decades of marriage. And in that, we've had 25 great years of marriage together. There were five really, really rough years, but she she got it together. (laughs) God worked on her. No, God worked on both of us. And, uh, and it's been so very, very good. Let me show you a little humorous clip that I do not mean to offend. So don't take offense, ladies. It's not saying guys are smarter, ladies are dumb. But it really does show just how different we are, even in the way we process things. And it's not right or wrong. It's just different. And that's what causes us to have to really lean into assuming the best and listening and loving and asking questions. little clip of a husband and wife having a conversation here as we get started. If it works. Do I push? No. And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me. And I can just feel it. Like literally feel it in my head. And it's relentless. And I don't know if it's going to stop. I mean, that's going to scare me most. But I don't know if it's ever going to stop. And there are mistakes that each of us make on each side side of that. But I think so often, both of us, the husband is so confused. The wife is so confused and often disappointed. We're disappointed in each other. We don't feel like we're being loved well. We don't think, feel like we're being understood. And I, I will say, as glorious as marriage is... I've had roommates before in college. I have a twin brother I lived with. Obviously, I have a family I grew up with. I've got a staff I'm trying to interact with. I lead small groups. Nothing has been as challenging as the measure of grace I've needed for marriage. And nothing has been as rewarding as tapping into that grace and humbling myself and truly saying... See, here's the mistake that we make. I made it, and I bet some of you have made it, or you're making it, or if you're not married, you're about to make it, so don't. 
The thought is, I want to work really hard at marrying the right person. And if you do, bam, it's just right. It's just, just naturally. That is not likely to happen. That is just not likely to happen. Because whoever you marry will be a sinner. You can take all those little personality things. Oh, we're both beavers. Whatever. You're both sinful beavers. And there's going to be little beaver dis- differences. Even beavers find a ways like, what? You, you chew like that? Yeah, I chew like that. Why don't you? It doesn't matter how similar you think you are. Our sin nature is going to cause us to focus on the differences. I still remember when I married Vicky, thinking, oh my goodness. One of the big things that just I thought was so amazing was how similar we were. I mean, I knew she was a woman and I was a guy. I hadn't lost sight of that. But I was like, oh my goodness, we agree on finances. It's amazing the way you were raised and I was raised. And I knew that's a big problem in marriage. So I thought, check that off the list. I'm like, oh my goodness, your dad made you mow in baseball cleats and with goggles. Mine too. They're both safety freaks. This is amazing. And and I I could just go down the list of the similarities. But when we got married, it was amazing. It was like all I could think of was you what? You what? You what? It was like, I wanted my music. I mean, we hadn't lived together, right? That was back in the day when you didn't live together before you got married, which you still shouldn't. Write that down. That's a little bonus right there. It's not in the notice. That's still a sin. So we hadn't lived together. It's like, I didn't know she doesn't play her music loud. I want music to hit me in the chest. Like the whole room should say music. And there is a bass and it's resonating off my chest. And maybe we can talk. I don't know. But music's what we're doing. And she's like, maybe we'll have music on real soft, really at bet, just turn it off. Why not have it off? And I want to be the last one at the party. She want to be the first one to leave. Uh, I could go on, you know. And I was like, what? And, and I ran out and bought, I, I bought all kinds of books. But one that I bought was The Incompatible Couple. It's still on my shelf just for amusement. And that's how bad it was. I just thought, oh, my goodness, I have married the wrong person. So let's dive into this and, uh, and see what does God's word say? What does God's word say? And we're going to start with the men because God starts with the man. So in the garden, I mean, if, if you're stuck in your marriage right now or there's areas that you wish were better and you're not sure who should change first, let me help you. Guys, it's the men. It's the men. Let me help you. Don't hear me saying you're most wrong. Though you probably are. But do hear me saying, if you're at a log jam and it's like, well, I would go if she would go. I would change if she would change. I would take some steps if she would take some steps. I'm not going to do it. You're the leader. And when Adam and Eve sinned, God came in the garden and he didn't say, Eve, where are you and where's your little man? He said, Adam, where are you? And so if your marriage is not what it should be, and don't hear me saying perfection, but you know it needs help. It needs growth. There needs to be some change and some repentance. Listen to me. God tonight is saying, Bob, where are you? Adam, where are you? George, where are you? He's calling the names of men. Again, please don't hear me saying it's all your fault. Do hear me saying, don't be that guy that is lagging behind or digging in your heels. And the reason things aren't moving forward, the reason you haven't asked for help in counseling, very often it's the guys. The woman's willing. The woman's like, let's go. Let's get help. He's like, not going to happen. Don't be that guy. Don't do that. God starts with us. So I'm going to start with you in this hour. I want to show you, there's so much that we could look at, but I hope you appreciate you're in level one. And so all we can do in most topics, whatever it is, is just kind of give you a 101, you know, husband 101, wife 101. Please know there's so much more that could be said and should be said. So just know we're trying to give you the basics. As I give you the basics, I think from scripture that you can see three big roles You can see from God's word for the husband. Three big roles that we're going to walk through. Leader, love. I'll go give you up front what they are. You're a leader. You're a lover. You're a learner. Leader, lover, learner. Those are the roles that you see in scripture for men. The husband is to lead his wife. And we're starting with the issue of leadership because that's what you see communicated by the order of creation. 
See, the biblical foundation for the husband's leadership is found in the very first book of the Bible in Genesis. The biblical basis of the husband's leadership is found in the very first book of the Bible. The order of creation establishes his leadership. There's two ditches to fall into. I know, ladies, there's been abuse. And here's one of my favorite ways to say it about everything. Just because something can be abused does not mean it should be, if you're in our church, do you know? Oh, you're breaking my heart. Abolished. I've said this before. Hello. Just because something can be abused. We tend to be a culture that's like, oh, that's been abused. Leadership's been abused. There should be no leader. We just both lead. Yeah, tell me how that works out. All right? Can leadership be abused? Can someone be a tyrant? Can someone be a dictator? Can someone be selfish? But God is a God of order, and God has called men to lead. What we need to do is clarify what does that look like? What is a godly, loving, servant leader? But the answer, ladies, and the answer, men, is not to begin to say, there is no real leader. We'll just both do this together, and that way there's no danger of abuse, and nobody will. No. The order of creation establishes his leadership. God created Adam first, and Eve was God's gift to man who did not have a helper suitable. So by virtue of the order of creation. Secondly, God declared the husband to be the leader. So you've got the example of the order of creation in Genesis. Then you've got it restated absolutely clearly in words by God in Ephesians. So we're not just guessing. We're not just drawing conclusions. There's clear didactic teaching in the book of Ephesians where he declares the husband to be the leader. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, himself being the savior of the body. The biblical view of the husband's leadership. What does this mean? Now, here's where it's important that we push off the table all of our worldly notions or whatever we see in our culture or think that means and say, what does it mean from the Bible to be the leader? See, if as soon as I say the leader, you think lounge chair, she brings me the, a frosty mug and the head of something on a plate. I don't ever help. I don't ever change a diaper. I don't ever clean a toilet. I don't ever carry groceries in. I don't, I don't, I don't. Then you got a completely wrong notion. So you may have some old school, if you've just been watching Archie Bunker and Edith, that is not going to give you a biblical, biblical view of husband and wife and the home and marriage. When you go to the scriptures and say, okay, he's the leader, and God has said he's the leader, and he's the head, what kind of leader is he calling us to be? Well, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, it says Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and even in leadership in general, it so easily gravitates to something that's self-serving, and Jesus wanted to clarify this with his disciples. He says, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. So if I have some authority or I have some power or position, I lord it over those that are under me. I remind them that I'm the leader. I'm the leader. Remember, I'm the leader. So, so make a note of this, guys. If you are regularly reminding your wife that you're the leader, something's wrong. And I'm not saying something's wrong with her. Something's probably wrong with you first. Leaders don't have to go around saying, I'm the leader. I'm the leader. I'm the leader. Remember, woman, I'm the leader. And if you go around using the S word, and I'm not talking about that one, submit. When a man starts telling to me, if she would just submit, well, if she would just submit, I have a response to that. If you would just shut up. Yeah. When a man starts saying that, my first place to check is, is he loving her? Because here's how God designed this, guys. Get this. When we do what God has called us to do, and we do it well. Don't hear me saying perfectly. We do it well. God did not mean for this thing to be disastrous. Do you, do you, do you understand that? He did not intend for this to be like, this just won't work. But sometimes we feel that way, we act that way, but we're not doing what he's called us to do. And then we say, this just won't work. When you do what God has called you to do well, and that means servant, loving, lay down my life leadership, 
I rarely run into a woman that says, I find it so difficult to submit to that. Look at that, how he loves me. Are you kidding me? Look how he he prefers me and lays down his life. Are you kidding me? Submit to that? No, it's when she's not in any way convinced that you love her. And it seems like you just think of you. And it seems like you treat her like a servant or handmaiden. That It's difficult to submit to you. He says, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It's not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your what? Servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, let me help you. Throughout this whole workshop, if you don't hear anything else, get this. When you get confused or fuzzy on what it is you should be doing and how you should do it, guys, don't try to remember what your dad was like. Don't think of any sitcoms or TV shows. Don't even think of any other person, Brad or somebody else. Who would I like for you to think of? Jesus. You cannot go wrong. You cannot go wrong. We are to love our wives and lead our wives like Jesus would do it. The way Jesus, and Jesus constantly said and modeled, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my, in fact, his last sermon of all the things, he could have done some amazing, just deep theological message his final night before his death. Do you remember what he did? Anybody remember in the upper room? He washed Why do you think he ended on a note like that? I do believe he knew of everything I've taught you. This is what you're still going to struggle with the most. And I want to leave you with this. And he said, you see what I've done. And I'm your Lord and master. And I am equal with God. And if I served you, serve each other. And he didn't just preach a message. He got up and took his outer garment off and modeled it. Because he knew Man, that's the sticking point for us. We're going to get it wrong on that. So here's what leadership is not. So ladies, take a deep breath of a sigh of relief when I I keep saying, guys, you are the head and you are the leader. You are the head and you are the leader. But here's what leadership is not, according to the scripture. It's not lorded over them. It's not the Gentile, worldly, secular view dictator that looks like this. It's me. And it's my subjects, whether it's wife or kids or employees. That's how the world thinks. But here's what biblical leadership is. It's servitude. It's servant, serving. That's what biblical biblical leadership is synonymous with servanthood. Now, granted, you've got to make decisions. And we'll talk about that some more in the next two hours. And there's times you've got to make the call. But, oh, the heart and soul and tone of biblical leadership is serving. So you have, you have those. Here's, here's how you're supposed to be thinking. If, if when I say leadership, you, don't, you, you just think, oh, good, there's people I get to boss around. You've missed it. Oh, good, there's people to do everything for me and I don't have to do anything. You've missed it. Biblical leadership is always, now it's on me to see that this person, whether it's three people that work under me or whether it's my wife, and it, this person Succeeds. I want to encourage them. I want to help them be all that they're supposed to be. I want to be faithful in, in all that God's called me to do to help them. I'm responsible to help them. I'm to be a covering and protection for them. I'm to, I'm to be sensitive to how are they doing and what do they need and what could I do more of. I'm, I'm, to be, I'm not to be assessing constantly. Am I giving too much? Am I giving too much? Am I giving too much? Am I too tired? That's not biblical leadership. Serving. So it looks like this. Those God has called you to serve and you. And that's really what you see with Jesus all through the Gospels. That's the heart and, heart and tone of what you see from Jesus through the Gospels. Servant leadership. I've never, well, well let me make a statement and I'm going to tell you a story. The real test of whether or not someone's a servant is how you respond when someone treats you like one, right? It's easy to say, oh, you know, yeah, I'm a, I'm a servant. 
But then sometimes when people really treat you like one, you're like, hey, I'm not your servant. Remember, even in our, in our home, we have five kids. And when they were little, it was funny. You could see, just like I didn't have to teach them to lie and I didn't have to teach them to be selfish, I didn't have to teach them to hate being a servant. I'll never forget how often they would say it would be something that had to do with interactions with each other. And I would hear it. And they would almost like spit it out with venom. I'm not a servant. I'm not your servant. Not your servant. I mean, our, our human heart is just like, servant. I'm nobody's servant. Like, no. I mean, it just, this, this, the way I'm talking right now, I know, guys, not just for guys, ladies, human beings, it's like taking the fur of a dog and rubbing it the wrong direction. How you like that? I don't. <laughs> and so, <laughs> please know, I don't wake up just thinking, Hey, I'm good to go. This, everything I'm saying right now to you guys, this is how I think. This is, this is going to take a radical reorientation of God's grace. But, but here's the good news. Listen, if it's, if it's following Jesus and being like Jesus, do I have to reach out and hope to somehow connect with him a couple, every, every so often, every few days? Where is Jesus, guys, if you're a Christian? He's living in you. He's that servant, Jesus, that humble, laid aside his right. One of the best passages you could look at is Philippians 2, 1 through 10. Oh, my goodness. The whole gist of it is he knew his right. Sometimes, guys, you think, but it's my right. It's my right. It's my right. He laid aside his rights and did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And that was a Greek word that's a poor translation that you think, what are you talking about? He's trying to steal something. In the Greek, it literally means he did not cling to or grasp or refuse to let go of because he knew it was his right. It was his right, but he didn't grasp it. He didn't cling to it. He, didn't ref- he laid it aside, humbled himself, coming in the form of a man, coming as a servant, and to the point of death, even on the cross, for us, for us. I was freshly made aware of this. This, this may sound silly. But I was teaching outside of San Francisco last week, and the church graciously said, hey, if you want to bring Vicky and come two days early, we want to send you somewhere beautiful. I was like, I don't even need to pray about that. Yes. <laughs> sure. So they sent us to Carmel-by-the-Sea. Like, I don't know if anybody knows. It's like, oh, my goodness, there's just like sheep. There's sheep in a field, and the ocean's behind the sheep, and there's craggy cliffs and rocks, and what's not to like? And so she's shopping at Marshall, and I'm thinking... Really, but hey, we're different. And I'm looking at the sheep at this beautiful place, reading my Bible for like four hours. And, but here's what happened is I watched, I've never been that close to sheep. I've watched horses, majestic. I mean, just one muscle in their leg just like stirs me. I'm like, horses are amazing. So many other animals just amazed. I sat and watched these sheep. And I kid you not, the longer I sat there, and I sat there for four hours. It's one of my favorite things to do when I go places. Nothing. I had my Bible. I had a nice cup of coffee. And I had sheep to watch. The word that just rose in my mind was pathetic. (laughs) They are in the most pathetic. Their legs are so spindly. They're not in proportion with their body. They look so stupid. And when they lay down, you're like, did you lay down or were you shot? They just go boom. (laughs) And then when they get up, it's like, eh, eh. Oh my, they don't look like they could run from anybody, defend themselves, hurt anything, attack. They just, I mean, pathetic is the word. And I sat and I thought, of all the animals, he doesn't call us cheetahs. And you are my cheetahs, and I am the cheetah tamer. No, it's like, you are my sheep, pathetic. And I am the shepherd. And then you think, he loves us. That just, I had a worshipful moment. I was just like, wow, that's us. That's how helpless we look. Wow, and he laid aside his rights to come and give his life for pathetic sheep. Oh my, but it's worse than that. They look pathetic, but they were not attacking me, which would have been really sad. I could have taken them all. And, uh, <laughs> We were attacking God. We were against God. We were hostile to God. We were his enemies. And he died for us. Somebody say, wow.
So he models for us servant, servant, servant. So how do you react when someone actually treats you like a servant? I went to Columbia Bible College in South Carolina, and uh, I'll never forget the story of one of my Bible professors told us. The current president at that time was, was uh, McQuilkin, but his father had been the original president of the school. And his father had been, uh, R.C. McQuilkin, had been a guest speaker in North Carolina, in Asheville. There's kind of a retreat center, a nice place. And he was the guest speaker there one weekend. And he just went down, like sometimes I'll do when I'm a speaker somewhere. It's like, I like to see the room I'm going to speak in, get the lay of the land. It makes me feel a little better. Just, what's the deal? So he went down into the hotel lobby to go into the banquet room and just check it out. And he saw that people were setting up chairs. So he just took off his sport coat, rolled up his sleeves, and started helping setting up chairs. There's a lady that arrived in the, in the lobby who was checking in for the conference at the hotel. And she dropped her two bags at the counter rang the little bell this is years ago so ding and she's checking in and and while the guy at the counter is dealing with her she looks over her shoulder and she sees him setting up chairs with his shirt sleeves rolled up and and she said boy take my bags to my room no please no he stopped what he was doing he went over without a word picked up her bags followed her up to her room Put them in her room. She didn't tip him. She didn't thank him. She didn't speak to him. You know how some people are like that? They don't speak to, you're too low for me. And then imagine that night when she had cleaned up and came down with her Bible and notepad, colored pencils, to the conference room. That same person was the keynote speaker. How do you react when people treat you like a servant? Is a real heart Revealer of what you actually think about yourself. Look at the contrast between what I'm trying to drive home to you between worldly leader and godly biblical leader. Worldly thinks, you know, along the lines of dictator, proud, no accountability, nobody tells me what to do, makes all the decisions without counsel. So, guys, if your idea of leadership is I make decisions, I don't even check with her. That's what it means to be a leader. No, that's what it means to be a dictator. It doesn't mean you make all the decisions without counsel. They expect others to serve them. They, they use sinful communication, lies, anger, manipulation. Godly leaders humble, welcomes accountability, seeks counsel before making decisions, serves others, uses biblical communication, and on and on we could go. It is distinctly different. Just saying leader is not enough. We've got to make sure you understand what are we talking about. It's not worldly, secular dictator it's all about me leadership and the greatest example of servant leadership is jesus so get that in your mind guys it's like it's like not just don't just think ephesians 5 for where do i go to get help on my marriage think matthew mark luke john when you're reading about jesus when you're watching jesus when you're tracking with jesus when you're saying i want to be more like jesus and you're you're following him how he interacts with people All this should help you with your marriage, guys, because it should help you know what does Jesus, godly leadership, servant leadership look like? It's not, do you know who I am? Jesus never, there there was one time when Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And he asked his disciples, but Jesus never went around saying, do you know who I am? Do you realize who I am? That's a proud person that says things like that. I'll never forget, uh, I enjoy the Bengals, but there are some thuggish, obnoxious, you know, uh, professional ball players in all fields. But we had a certain wide receiver. He's no longer with us. But I was told by someone who worked down there with the parking garage in Newport there, it's where I always park, he threw a little fit one night at the parking garage because the attendant wanted him to pay the whatever it is, the $2 that you're supposed to pay, And he threw it on the ground and said to them, do you know who I am? That's not the spirit we're talking about, guys. There's no place for that in your home at all as far as how we lead and interact with those that God's called us to serve. It's John 13 where you see that whole account of Jesus washing their feet. And I think it's, it's not a mistake I'm a big fan of don't ever jump right in on on verses. Whenever you can, back it up 
and grab some of the verses leading up to it and extend it on. If you back it up and start in verse 1, it's worth it because, because John sets it up and it's even more meaningful and shocking when you see how he starts this. He says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. He's a person of power and means and that he had come from God. I know who I am. So, so the silly movies that always depict Jesus as he's confused and he's effeminate and he just, he kind of staggers through the streets. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. He knew who he was. He knew where he'd come from and he knew where he was going. That he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And in that culture, it's, it's, you, it is more shocking when you realize what this looked like in their culture. We tend to think a nice, neat, clean, here I am in my clothes. All right, so I go and get a bowl and I get a little hand towel like what you might have in the hall bathroom. And then it is humbling. I stoop and I wash feet. It's more humbling than that, folks. In their culture, they wore outer garments and then they had just inner garments, usually linen because the culture was so hot. When you were the one that was going to wash feet, you would lay aside. So when it says he laid his side... Basically, he was just in nothing but his undergarments, which you would not have done unless you were a servant. And this towel, this was not a little hand towel like you'd get at Bed Bath & Beyond and put in the hall bathroom with a candle. This was a towel that was about as long as your body, and you would take it, and you would tie it around yourself. And in a sense, you become a part of this towel, and you and the towel are one, and you begin with your, with your dignified clothes off, and this towel connected to you to wash feet. Jesus did that. Jesus. And it is compounded by the fact that we know if you read other passages, they had just been in an argument leading to the upper room. You know what they were arguing about on the way to the upper room? Instead of thinking, oh my goodness, I think he's going to die. This is breaking our hearts. What are we going to do? No, no, no. Since, since things are coming to an end, what are they arguing about? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Oh my goodness. What a contrast. They're arguing over who's going to be the greatest. One of them's mama. Well, there's always been mamas. One of them's mama came, actually. You remember that? James and John said, hey, can I make a request? In your kingdom, can my son sit on your left hand? And your, I'm sure everybody else was like, get your mama out of here. That's all, that is really low. I could bring my mama too. We've all been arguing about this, and you got your mama to come and ask. So they're in the middle of a, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to sit on the right and the left? So no wonder when they got to the upper room, everything was laid out. Everything had been provided by the man who leased them the room, except a servant. The bowl was there. The water was there. The towel was there. A servant didn't come with the room. And so they're all lying there. Because in that culture, the table was low. And you would lie around it with your feet pointed out like spokes off of a wheel Feet are all aimed out, and everybody, I kid you not, because this is how it worked in the culture, was thinking, somebody's got to wash feet. I mean, you're walking on dusty roads, right, through donkey dung. And so you'd like to wash your feet, but everyone's thinking, I'm not getting up and doing that. We just had a big fight. I'd be the biggest loser. And that is all going on in their minds when Jesus, it says, rose from supper. I mean, he had to get up off the... And they're probably all thinking, he's going to send a message. He's got to do something. <gasps> Lays aside his outer garment. What? Girded himself and began to wash feet. So guys, when you're in that home, in those moments when you think, not me, no, or she doesn't deserve it, or they don't, or I, just get in your mind. Did those disciples deserve it? No. This was Jesus, how he served those that he was called to lead. This is how God calls us to lead. It's Jesus. Number two. So that's leadership. But I hope, ladies, you're feeling better about it. Not thinking, oh, this is wonderful. If it happens the way God wants it to happen, this would not be a problem to have someone lead you. But secondly, love her. So guys, you might be thinking, good. All right, I'm, I'm good on that one. I am the greatest lover. I'm telling you what. <laughs> That's why she went for me in the first place. Woo, I'm a lover. Well, let's see if you're the kind of lover <laughs> that the Bible 
talks about. Let's see, again, if we got the right thing going on here. The husband is to lead and it's servant leadership. The husband is to love in Ephesians 5, 25 to 33. Drill down into it for us. But here's what's interesting. It says, husbands, love your wives. And again, if we've got a comparison, just like with the leading, it's like Jesus led. With the loving, it's like Jesus loved. Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. And here's what love looks like. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not erotic or sexual. And say the word, gave himself for her. Verse 28, so husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Verse 33, nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. Now, I like to make, I like to make note of patterns or repetition in the scripture. Because we don't have everything God could have said to us. So what we do have is precious and it's worth noting Husband, guys, I don't mean to offend, put me at the top of the list. He comes at this in three different ways, but basically says the same thing. How many times? Why do you think he says it three times? I think it's because we're so poor at it. We don't do this well. Or we at least don't have the right notion of what it means to love. And so he hits it, says a few more things. Hits it, says, I want to make sure you got this. Says a few more things and hits it again. Love, love her. Love. I think it's worth noting. He doesn't say, and wives, submit to your own husbands. He says that once. A few more comments. And wives, submit. And a few verses later, wives, submit. That's how guys sometimes act. That that The passage just screams, wives submit. It doesn't. Don't hear me saying it doesn't say wives submit. It does. But three times it says husbands love them. And here's why I think it is. We do it poorly, but if you'll do it well, the submitting and respecting part is not hard. And we're the leader. So what we do sets a tone that determines how women, now, now don't hear me letting you off the hook, ladies. Next hour, you're going to get it. <laughs> but I hope I'm doing a good job right now so that you can get through that next hour. But listen, guys, seriously, all joking aside, we, you should have in your mind, I should love her so well that it is not hard to submit or respect me at all. Now, Scripture says you're commanded to. And so they're commanded to. But wouldn't you like it to be more than just raw, do it, girl. Here's the verse. (laughs) I mean, even in our marriage, let me say something. We've been married 30 years. And and it wasn't even that I've ever even said submit. But three times in our marriage, three times in 30 years, did something come down to where I said, honey, I hear you. I see you're upset, I see you crying, but I think this is what we're supposed to do. Three times. This is not how we relate constantly. Oh my goodness, she disagrees, but here we go, because I'm the man. Oh my goodness, she disagrees here also, and here we go, because I'm the man. I'm the man. I'm the... No. And even in those times, it was because I thought it was best for her. The first time was in the driveway of the first house we bought, and she's weeping, and she's just, oh, I don't know, I don't know. She's pregnant. And there was a there was an iguana in the in the teenager's room, and it smelled bad. And so she was just she couldn't. I knew this is the house she wants. She had made the list: fenced-in backyard, one-level fireplace, brick. Da, 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 da. So out of love for her, I didn't let us miss this. And I said, "Honey, I hear you, but I think this is what we've been looking for. Let's do it." Even then, it ought to be that you're motivated for them. Them, not here's the house she wants with the school district she wants near the friend she wants and the doctor she wants. But this house has a man cave, and me and my friends can watch football down there. So we're doing this. Never mind backyard fence school district. Who cares? Because I'm the leader. That's not what we're to be doing. Love, 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 love. Two important observations. This command. 
This is a command to love. It's not option. It's not an option or something you can take or leave. It's a command to love. Husbands, love your wives. And Paul repeats the command three times for a husband. Because I think it's not natural for us. It's not something we naturally do well. We need help. We need reminders. John 13, 1. There's even Jesus. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I think it's interesting as you read the Gospel of John. As you read the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1 through chapter 12, the word love is mentioned six times times but from John 13 to 17 and in John 13 to 17 that all happens within a matter of like 48 hours John 13 to 17 the upper room and then headed to the cross the word love is mentioned 31 times this just gets accentuated and emphasized right towards the end Jesus doesn't move to something else and because there really isn't something else more important. You even think about it, never mind husband and wife relationship. In that same chapter of John 13, he looked at his disciples and he says, here's why I need you to love each other because by this will the world know you're my disciples because of your Christian fish bumper stickers. Because of your amazing end time charts with the wheel within the wheel. Oh, No. By your, say it, love. It doesn't matter how smart you are and what you understand about the Bible and yada, 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 yada. If you're not a loving person, you're not a good testimony for Jesus. The greatest apologetic for Christianity is love. And that apologetic and that sermon on love should start in Christian homes between Christian husbands and wives. So also get a sense of this, men and women, both ways, wives and husbands. If, if you dig in your hills and you just refuse to humble yourself and do what is necessary to make this loving, you, you aren't just having a difficult marriage with each other. You are tarnishing and you're missing an opportunity to put on display before a broken, hurting world. Is there something better? I know you can't be perfect. Vicki and I still aren't perfect by any means. But this was to be an apologetic of Christ's love for the church Husbands, you're to be Jesus and the wives to, to be the church. He wants the gospel put on display. He wants his Savior put on There's more at stake in your marriage than just your happiness. But let me say this. If you're like, oh my goodness, so you mean I got to either glorify God or be happy. Let me tell you something. When you begin to do what God says do, and it does rub against your flesh, and you lay down your life, and you, oh, joy follows obedience the joy when you make your goal joy and i want to be happy i want this marriage the way i want it so i can be happy you don't get it and she doesn't get it and everybody's unhappy when you die to self and say okay lord okay lord and i know this may sound silly but in our marriage those of you that are in our church know i've talked about it some it was bad and i had this oh my goodness but oh what if i never read again i know that might sound silly but that's important to me And when I just said, Lord, there you go. If I never read another book again, and I didn't say it with venom, like, fine, I'll be ignorant for the cause of Christ and this wife. It'd be better that I read. My sermons would be better, but look at the hit I'm taking for the kingdom. No, I mean with a right heart and said, Lord, I want to please you. And I'm done being so scared. But, 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 will I, will I get to, can I have... Now, you weren't with me in those years. That was way back in South Carolina when I had hair. Those of you in our church family, do I still read today? Oh, my goodness, I read. But I had to be willing to say, if I never read again, and I got it back. I got it back plus a wife and joy and happiness and a chance to glorify God. You think you won't get what you want if you do what God says. You'll be the loser and so. There is joy down that path. There, it is so much better than what you are trying to hold on to or make happen. But there is a death involved. Please know. Oh, yes. 
It's the death of the flesh of saying my rights and my way and what I want. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 31 new references. Gary Thomas, one of my favorite. Let me tell you, since this is a marriage night, two hours in a row, let me tell you what my favorite marriage books are now. So this is not, I don't think it's listed in your notes. Dave Harvey's When Sinners Say I Do, little paperback, fantastic on the difference the gospel and mercy should make in your marriage. Gary Thomas, I'm about to read a quote from him, Sacred Marriage. The subtitle is, what if, what if God intended your marriage to make you holy, not happy? Oh, it is so good. And Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. Those, well, John Piper's This Momentary Marriage. And really, I could go on. But those are my top. Tim Keller, The Meaning of Marriage. Dave Harvey, When Sinners Say I Do. And Gary Thomas, Sacred Marriage. Listen to what... Gary Thomas says, divorce represents our inability to hold to Jesus' commands. It's giving up on what Jesus calls us to do. If I can't love my wife, how can I love the homeless man in the library? How can I love the drug addict or the alcoholic? Yes, this spouse might be difficult to love at times, but that's what marriage is for. Oh, listen to this. To teach us how to love. See, we're guilty of just saying, I can't love her. She's too hard to love. You grow in your love. You, you say, God, help me. I don't have it. I don't have it. Help me. To teach us how to love, allow your marriage relationship to stretch your love and to enlarge your capacity for love, to teach you to be a Christian. Use marriage as a practice court where you learn to accept another person and serve him or her. Jesus even washed the feet of Judas, who was just hours away from betraying him. I'll let you read the rest for the sake of time. So what are some of the wrong views of love? So even when I say you're to be a lover, if we're not careful, we don't really understand what the Scripture's talking about. What are some of the wrong views? So let's push off the table some of the wrong views. Love is a feeling. And by that, I just mean love is exclusively, solely a feeling. Don't hear me saying there is no feeling to it. But it's not just a feeling. When you go to the Scripture's, Love is a choice, and I love it when feelings are with it, but can you love without feeling it? It was weak. Let me help you. The answer is yes. Yes. And that's where people get in trouble in our day, and they'll say things like, well, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to do something kind and act loving when I don't feel it. Please be a hypocrite, because that's not being a hypocrite. A hypocrite is pretending to be something you're not. Doing what God says do without feeling it is called obedience. Oh my goodness, if you're a Christian that only does what you feel, you're probably not obedient nearly as often as you should be. Let me, let me give you an example. We tend to do this in marriages or even relationships with friends or roommates. Say, oh, I don't want to be a hypocrite and do something kind when I'm not feeling it. Monday morning, the alarm's going to go off for most of us. You've got a job. I hope some of you love your jobs, but I bet a lot of you, it's just a job. And when you get to that job, I don't know of any employer who's out in the parking lot in front of the, you know, XYZ building, whatever their name is, saying, all right, everybody that's pouring in here, I don't want anybody coming in here as a hypocrite. If you're not feeling it, like you didn't wake up thinking I love and I live for XYZ, don't come in here and start answering the phone and saying hello, and you don't mean it, right? Only, only people that are feeling it. No. No. Get to your desk, answer the phone, do the right thing, or you're fired. And if you only go to work the days you're feeling it, you'd be very unemployed. (laughs) So we practice this in all kinds of other areas. Think about it as a mother, especially you ladies. Do you not do all kinds of things for your kids you're not feeling, but you know you need to do it? I just need to do it. We operate this way in all kinds of areas of our life, but for some reason with marriage, I get this pushback. I don't want to pretend. That's not just pretending. You obey. And very often, listen to me, feelings will follow. The people that wait around for a feeling almost never get it. When you choose to invest, because think about it. Matthew 6, 21 says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. So I'll say to people, start making her your treasure. I don't like her anymore. I don't care. Make her your treasure. Start treasuring her and investing time in her and watch. 
your heart just might start following that way. But when you pull back and say, I'm feeling nothing, so I'm doing nothing, this is going to get worse. I know this is counterintuitive. I know this is not natural. You would never have thought of this. All kinds of things about the scripture are like, I wouldn't have thought of that. Good news here, because God thought of it. And he's a lot smarter than we are. So this whole love is a feeling. No, it's more than a feeling. Love is sex. No, sex is the icing on the cake of intimacy in marriage. But it's not the total deal. Love is weak. Here's where men can get in trouble. They just feel like it's a, it's a female characteristic. It makes them uneasy. I don't want to come across as loving. Jesus was loving. And he wept. And he showed him. I'm not saying, guys, make yourself cry. If you're like, I, I need to work one up here. I've never done that. <gasps> How do you do that, honey? Can you help me? <gasps> but I'm just saying, if you've spent your whole life just doing everything you can to hold back, and it's right there, you don't need to hold back anymore. Love is not weak. The very essence of love is to be vulnerable. To really give to someone else, you open yourself up and you're vulnerable. Love, biblical love, puts you at risk. So guys, if your approach to life is guarded and take no risks, and I don't ever want to look weak, you probably aren't a good lover. Because love is to be vulnerable and to invest and to open up, open up. So what is a biblical definition of love? I didn't get this out of the Bible. I don't have a Bible verse for it. But as I look at the scriptures, I come up with this that I think is fair. Love is giving to the needs of another without the ulterior motive of expecting anything in return. Ooh. Giving to the needs of another without the ulterior motive of expecting anything in return. And that's what you see from Scripture with Jesus. You think about it. Think how many verses that talk about love describing Jesus, the word gave and give is in there. It's giving. Galatians 2.20, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and, say it, gave himself for me. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave and Ephesians 5, 25, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Real men think and act like Jesus Christ, the greatest lover. And so lovers give. They don't take. They give. So leaders serve. They don't dominate. Lovers give. They don't take. They're not taking all the time. Again, great example. R.C. McCorkin is the story I told you of the older gentleman I did not know and his example of being a servant. This was his son that was the president when I was there. Uh, and I'll never forget his example. So while I was a student at Columbia Bible College, his wife Muriel got to the point with advanced Alzheimer's that she just, she just needed full-time attention. She, would, she was just walking. Her feet were bleeding every day because she would walk three miles to his office from their house and people couldn't, even caretakers couldn't constrain her. She was not happy unless she was with him. She was just out of sorts. And, and uh, so I'll still, I still remember in chapel, hey, this was a brilliant man. He's written books on hermeneutics and missions. He was at the peak of his ministry and influence, probably 54, just maybe a couple years older than me. And he stepped down from being president, moved out of the president's house on campus into a little house that was on Monticello Road. And I, I still remember the rest of my days as a student, I had to go down that road to go to the doctor's office and I would turn and I would look and there was just a screened in front porch. And very often he was on a swing and he had his arm around her. And I would think to myself, oh my goodness, most of these cars driving by, they have no idea who that is. And there he is. He could be speaking at conferences. He could be writing a book. He, could be, he was leading this Bible college and seminary. He, he, he. And now there he is. And she can't even communicate with him. She can't even talk. She makes no sense. And he cared for her. And it just made massive news. It was in Christianity Today and other places. And he says he was so surprised at the, at the response. But he said he was told as he, as he went to workshops to try to get help on how to take care of her. He ran, you know what he ran into? They said, they were all shocked. They said, statistics show, and this is sad, man. 
because we're the ones that are supposed to be like Jesus. Women will stay with their men. Men do not stay with their women in situations like that. He was the exception. It made news. Guys, it shouldn't make news. It should be normal for Christian men to lay down their lives and sacrifice themselves for the good of their wives. He said, one of the workshop leaders said, almost all women stand by their men. Very few men stand by their women. What degrees of love are we to show? So what degrees of love are we to show? Well, 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. We're to love first with our wives. We're to love most. So you don't wait around and see if she's going to love you and I'll love her back. You love. You love. And in the home, it shouldn't be like that the kids remember, oh, dad was a hard worker. We think he was loving. I don't know. That's not dad's job. Dads are to be hard workers. Mom, she was loving. Guys, that shouldn't be. Now, your love may look different, but it shouldn't be a question to anybody in the home. You should love most. You should be the greatest lover because you're Jesus. You should love sacrificially. I love C.J. Mahaney's challenge in a message that I listened to. He said, gentlemen, what are you doing each day for your wife that involves sacrifice? It doesn't have to be lots of money. But I started thinking about that each day and thinking towards the end of the day, have I done anything today that cost me? And by that, I mean just, and it might sound silly, but just inconvenienced, right? But isn't that the flesh? We just think, I don't want to be inconvenienced. So I'd be sitting in my chair. Kids are finally in bed. We've got, I, I helped, by the way, get the kids in bed. But I'm in my chair, and now she's at the dining room table working on homeschool stuff for the next day. And she talks out loud sometimes. So do I. And I'd hear her say, oh, I need a highlighter. But she's just kind of talking to herself. I would jump up, and it's like the Holy Spirit would say, Get that for her. Now, this is going to sound, I know. Highlighters are all the way downstairs in this white supply cabinet. I kid you not. Two flights. This is going to take me at least 90 seconds. But right? Doesn't the flesh just think, you've had a hard day. You helped get the, just pretend you didn't hear that. Now, to her credit, when I'd say, oh, I'll get you one. No, no, honey. I didn't mean for you to get it. No. I'm getting it. And, And it feels good. It feels good to stab your flesh. And same way, not that I clean the kitchen every night, but I look for ways and places to intentionally insert myself to serve and to give and to help. Uh, There was a night recently I'd had like night after night after night, gone, meetings, here, stuff, and I was exhausted. And she knew it, and she was very nice. But still, I want to... So I went into the kitchen and I said, and I just started, she said, you are not helping clean the kitchen. I said, no, I want to, I want to. And we talked and we cleaned. That makes a statement, guys. Now there's, please, I don't want you to leave here saying, oh, I hate him. There, there, listen, there are nights I just sit in my chair. All right? There are. So I'm not saying I do this all the time, but I'm looking for opportunities to think I want to intentionally inconvenience myself and step in and help. Now, I'm talking about today now. Guys, if you have little kids, let me just smack you in a very biblical way. If you are not right in there with her during what I call the hour of hell, from like right before supper to a couple hours after supper, it's just chaos. Everyone's irritable. Everybody's hungry. The house is a mess. She's trying to cook. The phone is ringing. People need baths. People, if you are sitting there playing some airplane game, I just want to smack you. Get, get up and get in the game. There's a game. It's all around you. Get in it. To sit there is just so Well, words are coming to mind I cannot use in this workshop. So, get in there. Servant leader, a lover that means giving, right? Your love ought to be unmistakable. She doesn't, if someone says, oh, my husband loves me, would your wife think to herself, I think my husband loves me. It it was so sweet to see how confident she was. Guys, you don't want your wife to wonder. I'm not talking about your words. I tell her. I hope you do. But does your life back up those words? So they should say, ah, my husband loves me too. He does. Unmistakably, in spite of faults. Third, learner. So you're to be a leader, and that's 
servant leader. You're to be a lover, and that's giving for the needs of another, expecting nothing in return. And you're to be a learner. Now, I, I needed help on leader. I needed help on lover. But let me tell you guys, I didn't even have learner on my radar. I mean, that was not even on. I thought all that was up front. You know, I grew up in the church. It's like, I read all these books and picked the right person, and I, and I prayed. And I just thought, done. Wife, here we go. The concept of learn her, and that was part of the problem. I wasn't learning her. It's like, oh my goodness, when you say I do, that's the beginning. You know some things about her, and now it's the beginning of a lifelong journey of going to school on your wife. Not women in general, but this one. There's some similarities, but there's uniqueness to every woman. God has called you, whoever you're married to, guys, God's called you to a lifelong long endeavor of learning her learning her just more and more learning her learning her ways learning what pleases her learning how you can help one of the best ways to do this is listen listen and ask questions one of our presidents i think it was lyndon b johnson had a plaque on his office wall that said you ain't learning nothing when you're talking so ask questions ask questions and learn your wife and learning is a command So I didn't just make this up and throw this in here. This is in the Bible. I didn't see it before I got married, but this is in the Bible. Well, here's a little humor. I know there may be more to learn than with us, but it's doable. So all the jokes, all the jokes, I don't mind showing this and saying, and I hope this doesn't offend you, ladies, you are more complicated than we are. I think that's fair. But what I think is wrong is when people say, Women are just bizarre and they make no sense and you can't understand a woman. God will not call you to do something that is not doable. Guys, God hasn't asked you to understand every woman. He's asked you to understand that one. And get good news. This doesn't have to happen in a weekend. You get to spend a lifetime on that. Okay, so you may have those first three switches figured out and you got 19 more to go. But till Jesus comes, you get to work on this. And I know that it is more, it is very much more simple. Like with me, I, I'm pretty sure she's done. I mean, I don't think she's learned anything new. It's like, I like to read. I like sex. I like to work in the garden. Hello. We knew that in the first whoop, two days together. <laughs> and I'm still learning about her. That's all right. It's a command that requires time. To learn her takes time. You're going to have to be around her, guys, and not just around her while you do something else at the same time. It's a command that requires study. Study her. I don't mean sit awkwardly and stare at her. And, uh, but you, by study, it's just you, you're alert to like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Like I learned early on, she likes little baby pine cones. And so when I see little baby pine cones, I am all over those. And I bring them back to her. I know she doesn't like fresh cut flowers, so whatever. I mean, so she doesn't. That's just real sad to her. They're going to die. She likes a plant in a pot. Great, I can do that. Potted plant. Here you go. I know, I know she likes bubble baths. I know she likes to read mysteries. I'm learning my wife. You need to learn your wife. It's a command that includes being mindful of her weakness. It doesn't mean she's less. It doesn't mean you're better. But guys... Understand this, women, God made them weaker. And by that, I don't mean they're not as smart by any means, but they are the weaker vessel, First Peter tells us. And, and here's what I think is meant by that. We're like clay pots, like I was just saying, like, well, there it is. Yes, very useful, hard to hurt. They're like fine china, all right? It's worth having, right? I mean, think about it. There's guys who, I don't want a Yugo. I don't want a Pinto, I don't want any of these sad cars. Guys go out and buy. I haven't. I still have a Toyota. But guys go out and buy these nice cars that remind me of women. Jaguars and Porsches. You got to drop the whole engine just to change the oil. That's an inconvenience. But they do it because it's a beautiful machine. All right. God gave us women and they are wonderful. But they are somewhat more complicated than you and me. But it's worth it. So you learn them. And you understand this is, a, this is an amazing creation of God and it's more fragile and it's more special. 1 Peter 3, 7 is our passage that, where I get here 
Leader, we've got Ephesians 5 and John 13. Lover, we've got Ephesians 5. With this learn her, it's really 1 Peter 3. You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way. That doesn't just mean be kind. It is the word didasco. And it is a classroom word that means go to school. Go into the classroom on your wife. Learn her. Learn her. Live with your wife in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman. What this does not mean is that she's weaker positionally. She's equal to you in Christ. She has all the inheritance and all the adoption of, that you do. It doesn't mean she's weaker intellectually. Many men are married to smarter ladies that are far smarter than him as far as, far as IQ goes. It doesn't mean weaker in endurance in some ways. I know in sports, often the women have an, you know, they put them a little ahead. My go-to is always, who has the babies? I mean, if we were having babies, guys, the world would have just already withered out. And there'd be nothing but <laughs> cheetahs and, and, and sheep who are pathetic. I mean, women, are, they can endure. Honoring is a command. So learn her and honor her. Don't disrespect her. Don't disrespect her. Don't look down on her because she's different. Honoring is a command. Both these commands, and here's what I think is interesting. Both these commands impact our spiritual life, guys. Never mind your home. It impacts your spiritual life. Look at this sobering warning. You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way and grant her honor so that your prayers may not be hindered. You say, what does that mean? I don't know exactly, but I don't want it to happen to me. I mean, the one thing I know is he's saying, if you don't learn her and you don't honor her, in some way that interferes with and hinders my prayer. I need my prayers to get straight to God. I need his help. I want my prayers to not be hindered. That passage says to me, somehow your earthly horizontal relationship with your wife, if it's not what it should be, interferes with your vertical prayer life. With your heavenly father. If you didn't have enough motivation before. I hope you'd have some now. And that's, that, this is my pushback with guys. I have guys sometimes that act like. Well things aren't good with her. And I don't know they can ever be good with her. But oh. Oh. It's great with me and the Lord. That passage tells me you're a liar. It's not great with you and the Lord. Because if it's not great with her. It's not great with him. Lead her. Love her. Learn her.